So uh, let me begin this sermon by clarifying something, because I think it's relevant. A lot of people seem to believe that I'm one of the pastors of this church, and occasionally I even gotten the honor of being addressed as Pastor Sam. But, and I get why, you know, I have been preaching sermons now and again for a little while, and I do work full-time for the church, but, you know, these are things that pastors normally do, but that's not technically true, because I haven't been ordained yet, and I'm not a pastor or an elder in any official sense. Now, I'm telling you this, to confess that I've actually been putting off the process. I wasn't in any big rush to be ordained. Partly because I can still kind of do the ministry I enjoy without being one, but mostly because it was and still is, in a lot of senses, terrifying. I'm not exactly what most expect to be the pastor type, and when I read the qualifications of an elder, like in First Timothy, I think to myself, high bar. <laughs> and because I have to live with myself every day and I know the thoughts and intentions of my heart, I have serious doubts that I can clear. You know, like above reproach, gentle, nah, <laughs> me. Because I feel like when I do become a pastor, I'm saying to the world that I am all of these things, right? It's like putting a bigger target on my back giving the world more reasons to scrutinize me and point out how I have failed to live up to those biblical, yet nonetheless lofty, expectations. I didn't want that. I didn't want to feel like a failure or a fraud. So I chose to limit my liability by remaining in a position that was comfortable enough for me. Now, perhaps many of us here today too go through a similar struggle be it taking up some actual position of leadership in the church, or just simply proclaiming our faith boldly and publicly. Because being a Christian is necessarily, at some level, countercultural, right? The kingdom of God is a contrast kingdom, where the Lord calls us to uphold values and a way of life that may be foreign or even offensive to whatever context that we're in. Not everyone is going to get or can respect what we believe and how we choose to live. So we become deterred to follow Jesus with as much passion and commitment as he would probably want us to. Then we are content to remain private about our faith, or at best surround ourselves in some Christian bubble or holy huddle in order to minimize whatever potential scrutiny or disturbance being older Christians might bring. So the series that we've been going through in the book of Acts has been quite rebuking for me actually, especially in passages such as today, that we'll be studying today, where we see that in fact God has taught us how we can boldly continue to witness to the gospel even when the stakes are highest and even when we know that rejection is basically guaranteed. So let's read our passage today, a bit of a long one. So. Please bear with me, because we'll be reading all of Acts 26. This is the Word of God. So, Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, 
that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning by my own nation had in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority of the commission of chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter from the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goat. And I said, Who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first that those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all the region of, the, of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here, testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the grave, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Pastor said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows these things, and I speak to him boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, 
Would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all those who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. When they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And the group was at the festival. This man could have been set free. He does not appeal to Caesar. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, the passage that we just read was actually like the sixth time Paul had to give his defense before the authorities. And this time is the most pressurized and intimidating of them all. Paul was standing in front of Herod of Agrippa, the Jewish puppet king who has come from a long line of killers. His great-grandfather was responsible for the murder of innocents in Jesus' birth. His great-uncle approved of the execution of Jesus and John the Baptist. And his dad, as we saw in Acts 12, was the one who killed James. And with him was Festus, the Pontius Pilate of Paul's time, the representative of this broken Roman government system that had, just, that had unjustly imprisoned him for years. Yet in a circumstance where death seems almost certain, this actually became Paul's best chance to give his most thorough defense of the faith that is recorded in the book of Acts. And in this text, we see that he was able to do this because the Holy Spirit gave him three things. Three things that will also make us bold witnesses of the gospel in every circumstance. Okay? So our three points. We can always boldly testify to the gospel when, one, we are clear about why the gospel is rejected by them. Two, we are willing to communicate our story to them. And three, we are compelled by Jesus' heart for them. Okay, we'll see the points again on the screen later. But let me just say first, there's so much good stuff in this text that it will be impossible to cover everything thoroughly this morning. And I might be wrong, but I feel like I'll do it an injustice if I don't preach the whole text as a whole. So be prepared, because I'm going to try to pack everything in quite densely this morning, and I'll be jumping around the text a little bit for a size, so it'll be super helpful if you had your Bibles out, and follow along with me as we study the text. Okay, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in our sight, in God's sight. Let's get into it. Point one. We can boldly testify to the gospel when we are clear about why the gospel is rejected by them. Right, so ever since Paul got to Jerusalem, a period of over two years at this point, this whole time Paul has either been in prison or questioned about his belief. Yet even so, nobody seems to understand the real reason why he was put on trial in the first place. If you recall what's been happening in the previous chapters, the Jews wanted his head and accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of violating their sacred traditions by making what to them was an utterly outrageous claim, right? That people didn't have to be circumcised, to be saved by God, and that Gentiles, now non-Jews, also had to be the had the opportunity to be part of the kingdom of God. This really bothered them because it means that they weren't the chosen race anymore. Right? They had been working so hard, worshipping day and night, 
Verse 7 says, trying as hard as possible to obey God's laws so that they don't lose that status. And now, it seems to them, like Paul is saying, like all that, is for nothing. The Roman authorities, on the other hand, dismissed him for an entirely different reason. Right? We studied how, last week, how Festus himself thought that this whole issue with all the Jews was just some internal religious dispute, making Paul out to be like this, this religious quack who believed in something as foolish as a dead man coming back to life. So he didn't really understand what the fuss was all about, and he wasn't actually threatened by Paul. The Romans would have probably killed him by now and be done with it if it wasn't for the troublesome fact that he was a Roman citizen and had claimed his right for a fair trial. So what I'm saying is, right, although both sides have heard some true facts about what Paul was saying and, and objected to different parts of it, they haven't actually listened to the heart of Paul's message. So on this occasion, when Paul's life was on the line, he wanted to, there to be no misunderstanding about the message he was preaching. And he said it in verse 6 and 7 in unmistakable terms, that he was on trial because of the hope, the, prom, uh, the promise, God promised our fathers. Our hope in the promise of God, our fathers. Okay, what does that mean? Let's unpack that a little bit. You see, if you were a Jew, and you knew the Old Testament, your entire religion, all of your hopes, and everything that you live for would hinge on one particular promise of God. That one day, God will raise up an anointed king, the Messiah, or in Greek, Christ. This righteous ruler will save Israel, God's people, and this king will gather his people into one nation, defeat all her oppressors, and liberate her. Then reign not only over Israel, but over all nations. And it is then that all the injustices, all the suffering, God's people had to endure will finally end and the family of God will be reunited once more to enjoy this promised freedom and peace forever. Right? They call this, the Jews did, the Shalom. But what Paul and Christianity has been saying for 2,000 years are not only that these promises are valid and true, but they have in fact been fulfilled. Because this promised king has come. And Christians are claiming that Jesus of Nazareth, this lowly carpenter turned rabbi, was in fact this king. And the fact that he suffered unto death and God raised him to life was proof of this fact. Right? This is what Paul emphasizes there in verse 23. This claim, however, subverted the expectations of the Jews. They thought what salvation looked like was this political revolution. They thought that the Messiah would look like this warrior king that will come in like all the other kings of the earth with all of his horses and all of his men who wage war on empire that's conquered them. Right? This, in this case, in Paul's day, the Roman Empire. Then, shalom for the people of God. Yet King Jesus actually teaches us something different. That in reality, the problem is deep. Because the power that enslaves us, the power that oppresses us, isn't any human power. And it's a power that's more insidious 
and difficult to defeat than even the Roman Empire. Because it is in fact the spiritual power at work behind every human evil. Jesus calls this power, in verse 18, darkness and the power of Satan. It's called darkness because what this power does is blind us from what is truly good. It makes us unable to clearly discern between what is good and evil. And it is called the power of Satan because it refers to what Satan tries and successfully did to Adam and Eve, the first humans in the Garden of Eden. Distrust the perfectly good word of God to do what is right in their own eyes. Paul is saying, and Jesus is saying, that this is has been what's been happening since then up to even today to every single human. The consequence of that is our endless list of selfish decisions and destructive behavior that's caused us to not only harm each other, but ruin God's world. Therefore, we've become guilty before God and are supposed to be held accountable for what we've done. Furthermore, our distrust towards God has caused us to be distant from Him. A rift between us and God has appeared so that we're no longer able to enjoy this intimate relationship with God that we're made for, but instead we end up thinking of God as our enemy, as our punisher, the one who will come to judge and harm us. So we try to cover ourselves and hide from him. Right? Isn't this what happened in the garden? Now, have you yourself experienced this? So what the gospel is saying is that we don't need someone ultimately to liberate us from, our, from the cause of our earthly problems. What we need is a Messiah who can bring us from darkness to light. Who can show us what is truly good and free us from the power of Satan to God, reconciling this broken relationship we have with Him. What we need is the forgiveness of sins that we're guilty of, so that we can be made holy and we can have a place next to a holy God. This is the true show that God wants to give us, that Jesus is saying He has for us. So what Jesus is saying that he is the solution to the, this problem that the Old Testament promises. By living a perfect and sinless life, he showed us how we can resist the power of Satan. And by suffering and dying on the cross, he has forgiven our debt of sins that we don't have to pay anymore, therefore freeing us from our guilt of sin. And now, because he is risen, through faith in him, we can also be free from the power of Satan from the sins that enslave us and enjoy this relationship of trust with God once more. And of course, this problem is not only something that Israel suffered, but it is a fundamentally human problem. Every single human being was initially in darkness and distant from God. That's why the good news of the Gospel is that God provides the solution or this problem for everyone. That's why Paul goes out of his way in this passage to emphasize multiple times that everybody needs to know this truth, both Jew and Gentile, both small and great, whoever 
we are, whatever you've done, wherever you've come from, you have the opportunity through faith in Christ to be free from darkness and be reconciled to God. Therefore, the message of the Gospel is this. God has acted climactically and decisively to free us from sin. And a free offer of salvation has been given to all. And either we can ignore or reject this offer and continue to live in darkness, continue to be under the power of Satan, doing what is right in our own eyes, or we can accept this offer. And how we do that is spelled out for us in verse 20, that we should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with our repentance. Because if we truly accept that God has freed us from our sin, Reality as we know it has changed, right? We cannot stay the same. We cannot keep on doing the works of darkness and continue doing things our own way as Satan would have us. Because we should have been free from the sins that once enslaved us and estranged us from God. So Paul is saying our works must be consistent with this new intimate relationship with God that we have, right? Like. You shouldn't be cozying up next to your toxic ex if you're truly in a committed relationship with someone you love. We all know that. This, friend, however, is what the human heart fundamentally has a problem This is the reason why we ultimately reject the gospel. Because in accepting the gospel, it means we no longer can live in the sins that we love and enjoy so much means we must humble ourselves and admit that we are totally guilty and completely helpless against our sins. And that is uncomfortable. So Paul is pointing out in this passage that all this, it's against our culture of the Jews, or that it doesn't make sense that the Romans are secondary issues. Right? We can demonstrate we can demonstrably show how following Jesus actually makes us the best version of our culture and that there is profound beauty and rationality behind what we're saying. But that's not what convinces us or anyone. Because the real reason why humans reject the gospel is because we don't want to repent. We just don't believe that we're that bad or that we need Satan. At heart, we don't want to trust God. We want to do what we want to do. So how does knowing this help us testify boldly to the gospel? Because the reality is, it's impossible for us to show someone that they need Jesus. Nobody has ever been convinced that they are sinners because they are told. Let me repeat that. Nobody has ever become convinced that they are sinners because they are told. But the good news is, we're not supposed to convince them. The human heart is so hardened to sin that it takes the supernatural work, the Holy Spirit, to convict us of our sins so that we will genuinely turn to God for mercy. We cannot make this happen for anyone. What we can do is tell everyone how this happened to us and how this has changed everything. 
which is exactly Paul's strategy. Point two, we can boldly testify to the gospel when we are willing to communicate our story with them. So here's what's interesting to me, right? Paul literally had the most important thing ever to tell them. But how did he try to prove that what he's saying was legit? Right? Not by using his brain, by giving them some sophisticated theological argument about how the Old Testament pointed to Christ. Definitely he was smart enough to do that. Nor was it even by doing something remarkable, like a miracle. We've seen him raise a child from the dead. That's pretty impressive. Why not just do that one again? Right? But despite all of his knowledge and all of his feats, Paul didn't lean on these to make his appeal. Rather, what Paul thought will testify most powerfully to the power of the gospel is his story. As we saw, the bulk of his speech in this text is spent telling the crowd about what Jesus had done for him. And specifically, Paul talks about three things. The first thing that Paul said in verse 4 to 11 after asking Agrippa to listen to him, that he tells him his background, right? where he came from. Paul tells the king that he was a Jew like himself and all those who accused him. Such that, like them, he was only trying to be faithful to the Old Testament as well. And look at verse 9 to 11. He goes on to candidly confess his dark past. That he was like them, or even worse. He put Christians in jail, conspired to their murder, and even chased them down to foreign cities so that they would stop preaching the gospel. No one hated Christianity. And what this shows to me that Paul was vividly aware that he didn't think himself as any better than those who were trying to kill him. Rather, he showed that he understood exactly where they're coming from and why they're doing what they're doing. Paul wasn't coming from a place of self-righteous judgment, but having been absolutely that none of them are out of the reach of God's grace. That they, his hardest enemies, can genuinely change too. This is why the second thing that Paul gets into in this moment of truth was his conversion. Paul talks about how God came to him. In verses 12 to 18, he summarizes to us what happened in the Damascus Road, what we studied previously in chapter 9. And what we really see him highlight from his experience is that God came to him. Not after Paul got his life sorted out, not after even he was sorry for what he's done, but as Paul was still persecuted the church. When he was still God's enemy, when he was still deep in the mire of his sin, God called him out of darkness and into his marvelous life. You can imagine when Paul read our confession of sin text, how much his life, how much his experience really hit him. What Jesus said to him in verse 14 did, really gets me. Right? After asking why Paul was persecuting him, Jesus says to him, it's hard for you 
a kick against the goat. You guys don't know, goat is this sharp stick that farmers would use to herd their animals. It's like Jesus is saying that. It's hard for it. Is it? I know you're in pain. I know you're hurt. I know you're hurt. I know you can stop. I can give you this. Take my burden, it's easy. And take my yoke, it's light. Paul highlights for us both the immense struggles he had with God and the overwhelming power of God's grace that ultimately changed him. As unable to resist this grace, Paul takes God up for this offer and tells us this third thing about his commission. How God changed him from being a persecutor to a preacher. After Paul met Jesus, his world turned upside down such that he has no choice but to turn his life around. Because God had appointed him the most stubborn adversary as a servant and a witness to preach the gospel to all nations so that they may be like him who brought out of darkness and insult him. What Paul emphasizes here, if you read it, is not his sense of self-importance or how special he is. But how in verse 17, that God promised to help him do this by delivering him from all who persecute him. And then later in verse 22, he affirms that God has indeed been faithful to this promise thus far and helped him such that he can stand before the king and before the governor witness that is so before the greatest power in the land by the help of God. Now I'm guessing that most of us don't have a testimony as cool as Paul's right? We're probably not as bad as he was like none of us has ever thrown innocent people in jail I hope and I doubt that our convergent story included a blinding light or some voice from the heavens I can say with confidence, friends, that every single one of us who are genuine followers of Jesus has a story worth telling. And it is our greatest tool to witness to the gospel with. Because every one of us was saved out of some sort of spiritual darkness. We had a sinful past before Christ. Be it in the form of some hedonistic lifestyle of some or the self-righteous legalism of others. All of us were struggling with sin in some way, and there will always be someone who can relate to this struggle. And each one of us, every single one of us, if we have truly been saved, has had an encounter with God. It might not be this abrupt, profound religious experience like Paul. It might be this gradual process over time, yet nonetheless, somehow, God has met us where we while we were still sinners to show us the error of our ways, but also offer us grace. Grace that He wants to offer us all. As such, we also have a commission, right? To testify to the gospel in a general sense through our words and deeds, but also in a particular sense, right? We've all been gifted with particular ways to serve the kingdom of God and participate 
to the kingdom work of prayer and gospel. I might not know what exactly that is right now, but I do want to emphasize that I feel like I stand on good ground. So when I say that in some shape or form, after encountering Jesus, after we began to follow Jesus, our lives have changed. If we think about how we follow Him, we can also be aware of how God has been faithful in our lives. Every Christian has the story. So let's keep it from sharing our story. Why are we not enthusiastically broadcasting God's goodness in our lives to the world? I know for me, like I shared in my introduction, it's often fear. Because I think that if I share my story, I'm saying to everyone that I've got it together. That scares me because I still struggle with so many things and I vividly realize that God is still working on me. So how is it that I'm worthy to be a witness when I'm really struggling? I can even start to think that because of my deficiencies, my witness does more harm than good to the kingdom. But friends, I'm beginning to realize that when this prevents me from standing boldly for the Lord, it's not humility. This is the voice of Satan whose name means the accuser, trying to impose what little power he has left on me, telling me to trust what I think about myself instead of what God had declared about me. Because the reality is that this is a process. While on the one hand, we do truly still struggle, on the other hand, God had already and started this work of sanctifying us, and He promises that He will finish the good work He started in us. And God, in His infinite wisdom, has made it such that He will use the story of this process, with all of its parts, to witness to His power and call sinners out of darkness and into light. So we must never be ashamed of our story and happily tell even though, as Paul experienced, there will be scrutiny, and not everyone's going to accept it, yet we persist doing it, because the love of Christ compels us. Just point to just briefly. We can boldly testify to the gospel that we are compelled by Jesus' heart. After Paul went through the trouble of giving them his whole soliloquy that convinced them to follow Jesus, by the end of the passage, Luke doesn't record any conversions or anything, right? No one's life has changed, apparently. Like we've seen in other sermons in the book of Acts, for example. The only thing that I guess could kind of be considered positive is that in verse 31 and 32, Agrippa and the people around there basically declare that Paul was innocent and he shouldn't be innocent. But Paul wasn't even done speaking before Festus ruled corrupted him and accused Paul of having gone crazy. He thought Paul has lost his mind. Just kind of excusable, right? Paul was saying he was being consistent with what the Old Testament teaches and Jesus wasn't a Jew, so it's not a great surprise that he didn't get it. But Agrippa, who was a Jew, 
who apparently believed in the same thing as Paul. And in fact, we can see in verse 26 and 27 and in the beginning of our text, Paul himself knows that Agrippa should have understand, should have understood what he was saying. Instead of believing, he replied in verse 28 by asking Paul, in such a short time, would you convince me to be a Christian? He's like basically dismissing Paul and saying, yeah, right. You think I'm dope? You think it's that easy? And then he's got up and left in verse 30. So even after the Apostle Paul poured out his heart and hearing firsthand some Holy Spirit inspired words, even this was not enough for these men to come to faith. They still looked down on Paul and their hearts were still hardened towards Christ and they remained in darkness, as far as we know. So if what kept Paul going in his ministry was the immediate, tangible result of it, rejection like this would have crushed him. But it didn't. Because check out Paul's comment in verse 21. He said, whether short or long, I would to God that I, not only you, but also all who hear me this day must become such as I am, except for these chains. You can imagine him pulling on this chain, except for these. I want you to be. I love this line because it just shows Paul's heart for ministry. Paul communicates that he's willing to do whatever he thinks and spare nothing of himself if it meant giving them a chance that they might hope in Jesus too. The only thing that he doesn't want to share with anyone is the suffering that, and injustice that he had to go through so that they, the very ones who made him suffer, can have hope. How Christ-like is that? Right? Because this, but in an ultimate way, is exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus also stood before a Roman official, and a Herod, in fact, on unjust charges. He was slandered, chained, beaten, endured every rejection, every injustice, every suffering on his way to be crucified as an innocent man. And Jesus willingly did that so that we don't have to suffer so that we can be freed from our chains, right? Free from sin and receive forgiveness from God so that we can be like Jesus, having this intimate, trusting, loving relationship with God. Jesus endured the ultimate chain so that we can have ultimate hope and freedom. And this is true, friends. Why should we be unwilling to take on a small change, inconvenience ourselves, limit some of our freedom, so that we can testify boldly to this hope that Christ has given us? And if it is true that there are people who Jesus loves who might be turned from darkness to light because of our testimony, why wouldn't we share? So friends, if any of you right now are kicking against the door, if you sense that you're still living in darkness, that you are still distant from God, it's hurting. 
I tell you um, that this can change today. If you're willing to repent and ask for your sins to be forgiven, however bad you think your sins may be, the promises of God says that He will forgive you and He will set you free from the power of your sin and as He's done with Paul, as He's definitely done with him. So would you have an open hand and make a Lord of your life? Would you tell of His goodness and the mountains and set your life's foundation? Pray that you will. Heavenly Father, blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe, you are sovereign over our lives. The mercies that you've given us, the blessings that you've given us, is so much, it's too much for us to count, and so much for us that we don't even realize most of it. I thank you, Lord, today that you have given us the opportunity to hear your truth and be reminded of your hope. Lord, I pray that this truth can never be stale on us. That today our hearts might be revived and that our joy will overflow so that we will tell of your goodness to all those who would listen. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would use our imperfect minds to testify to your glory and all those who are in darkness to your light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.